So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's a great promise, isn't it? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And I'm sure most of you here will be familiar with a little game called I Spy. I Spy. Anyone here never played that game before? You've, you all played I Spy. Uh, when we, whenever we as a family go out for something to eat, we normally play a game of I Spy. And it's normally Corbin who starts us off, and it normally happens just after we order the food. And so like clockwork, on Monday when we were out for something to eat as a family, after we'd ordered our food, like clockwork, Corbin then starts us off on a game of I Spy, saying, I Spy, with my li- I know you want to say this with me. I can see it. I spy with my little eye, something beginning with C. Now, when Corbin ever says C, I go for the obvious answer, and I go, Corbin, uh, to which Corbin says, no, it's not Corbin. And so I get a little bit silly then, and I say, well, is it, is it Corbin's eyes? No. Corbin's ears? No. Corbin's nose? No. Corbin's shoulders? No. Uh, and he just looks at me, and then he finally gets to a point where he says, it's nothing to do with Corbin. And then normally, it only takes really... Two guesses after that, and then everybody gets what Corbin has suggested. Because Corbin has this little habit of when you get a few wrong answers, he starts handing out clues, clues that are basically the answer to what he's guessed. The real trick as a family, when we come to play I Spy together, is to not let Aiden have a go. Now, we're not being cruel, and we're not being nasty. He's a nice lad, but he's an absolute nightmare to play I Spy with, because he's just too good. And if Aiden gets a turn, then it's Aiden's turn forever. No one else is getting a go because he has this annoying habit of making it difficult. And so like clockwork, Aiden gets a turn on Monday and he gains control of the whole table and he starts off with I spy, with my little eye, something beginning with and yes, he does take this long, because he doesn't make his mind up beforehand. S. And so I'm like, spoons, shade, shoulder, shoe, sock, shirt, salt, salt cellar, seat. No, 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 no. Sprinkler, serviette, speaker, signage. Steph, suddenly remembering my wife's name partway through it. No, 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 no. Sherwin. No. Sherwin's eyes, Sherwin's ears, Sherwin's nose. No, no, and Aiden just normally glares at me at that point. And then, and then I start wondering if Aiden's forgotten how to spell. And then I turn to him and I'm like, you do know that chandelier begins with a CH. And he just gives me a glare as if to say, Dad, I'm not that stupid. And it's really frustrating because the time the food arrives, we're still playing. We still haven't guessed what well, this annoying, beautiful lad has, has come up with him. We're still trying to work it out. And Aiden's just sat there waiting. And he can see the pleasure on his face. He's just waiting for us all to turn around and say, I give up, which we all do. And then Aiden reveals the answer. And it's something really, really annoying. And it's not just that it's annoying, but it's often annoying because it's, it's obvious. And it's been there all the, all the time. And we just haven't seen it. 
Because that's the challenge of I Spy, isn't it? When you play I Spy, what makes I Spy challenging is that when someone calls out a certain letter, you look around the room and suddenly all these ideas and options come flooding into your head because suddenly everything begins with S. You're hunting down for everything S. And so what makes it difficult is that what you're looking for is right there. It's nearby. It's close at hand. But seeing it, especially when your head is swirling around with other ideas, is difficult, if not impossible. Let me say that again, because if I repeat it, it'll help us to catch hold of this beatitude this morning. That what you're looking for is right there. It's nearby. But seeing it, especially when there's other ideas swirling around in your brain, is impossible, if not difficult. Well, sorry, if it's difficult, if not impossible, without somebody helping you out, without somebody pointing it out. Jesus says, Blessed are those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Think about I spy, and I won't have to preach now. I can just straight sit down, you'll get it straight away. But I'll help you out. Now, as a reminder of what I've said in previous weeks, when Jesus utters these words that are part of the Sermon on Mount, he's speaking to the people of Israel, first and foremost, his own people, and they are tired. They are tired. They are under the boot of the Roman kingdom. And they're looking for God's kingdom to come about on earth. They, they are craving. They are yearning. They are hungry for comfort and justice and liberation and vindication and mercy. They are desperate, absolutely desperate to inherit everything that God has promised. And so they are hungry. Like I, I said the other week, they are, they are hungry and thirsty for God's righteousness. They want to see God act out of his loyalty and his faithfulness. They want God to come and rescue them from their exile and their bondage, from from the powers that have enslaved them. What they're looking for is a Messiah. We're used to that word. A Messiah, a Savior. Someone who would come and bring in God's kind of world. And what they are looking for is right there. It's among them. It's nearby. They can touch it. They can see it. They can actually physically see it. But seeing it, recognizing it, especially when you have other ideas swirling around in your head, is difficult, if not impossible, unless someone helps you. See, in Jesus, which is why we're gathered here today, in Jesus, God had come to rescue. That's why we're here, isn't it? In Jesus, God had come to birth the kingdom of God, and yet so many, so many didn't see it. You understand what I mean, don't you? They can, it's physically there. It's not that God is invisible. It's not that God is hiding from view. It's, it's not that God is inactive and somehow sitting in the background. God is fully on view. He's got no filters at all. God's nature and God's work are perfectly displayed and perfectly made visible, as, as the writer of Hebrews mentions in, in the opening of his letter. It's perfectly visible in Christ. But the reason they don't recognize it The reason they don't recognize God is because how God had come and what God was doing did not match with the ideas swirling around in their brains. And so as John writes in his gospel account, right at the very start in John chapter 1 and verse 10 to 11, God came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. God came to his own people, and even they rejected him. They didn't see it. 
See, Israel's looking for a military leader. They're looking for a revolutionary. They, they have this other idea of what the problem is that God needs to solve. And, and part of the problem for them was Rome. That they were under Rome's oppressive rule. And, and, and what they wanted to be is free. Let's head us free from Rome, liberate us so we can have this land back to ourselves. The other part of the problem for, for some of them as they saw it was to do with their unfaithfulness to Torah or their interpretation of God's law. And these two problems went together in some minds. In some minds they saw it as their unfaithfulness to how they understood God's Torah is what prevented them from inheriting what God had promised and what led them to be under Roman rule and Roman oppression. And so the solution they're looking for, the way they wanted to see God act, was for God to raise up a military leader who would topple Rome, would wage war against them, would be victorious against them, and would then would lead the people of Israel back to being faithful to the Torah as they understood it, which makes sense. If that's how you view the problem, that solution makes sense, doesn't it? Except Jesus did neither of those two things. For a starters, and we won't have time to have a look at this this morning, but as a starters, he challenged their interpretation of the Torah. In fact, that's what he goes on to in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said like this, but actually I say it's this. And secondly, Jesus, if I'm reading the Gospels right, <laughs> Jesus didn't lead a glorious military campaign against Rome. I don't read it there. Do you, do you read that there? I don't. And to make matters worse, if I, if I read the gospel accounts right, to make matters worse, he was actually executed by Rome in a very horrible, excruciating, shame-inducing manner. In other words, he, he was killed by the bad guys these people expected him to save them from. Which doesn't look like the solution if that's the solution you're looking for, does it? Now, I've read a number of amazing Jewish thinkers over the years, Jewish theologians, people I have learned a lot from and I am thankful for, and I would encourage you uh, to read some Jewish theologians. You'll gain a lot of insight. But they all say the same thing about why it is Jesus isn't the Messiah, in their opinion. They all say the same thing, and it's simply this. He didn't defeat Rome. End of. He didn't defeat Rome. Not only that, he didn't even die trying to. And so they don't see God's saving works in Jesus. They don't see because what they're looking for doesn't line up with what God has done. And he wouldn't be alone. When Jesus died, his disciples felt they got it all wrong as well. They also thought that Jesus had come to fight with Rome and to deliver Israel. There's many accounts in that in the, in the New Testament. We, we won't have time to look at that this morning. But they also saw his crucifixion as, as a defeat. We've lost. And so on the road to Emmaus that you can read about in Luke chapter 4, two of his disciples, as they're traveling back home on the road to Emmaus, grieving over what they saw as Jesus' epic failure, they bump into a stranger and they confess to this stranger in Luke 24 and verse 21, we had thought that Jesus was the Messiah. We thought he was the one who had come to deliver Israel. In other words, he obviously wasn't and we were wrong. And, they, and think about it, they, these people spent time with Jesus. This gives preachers great encouragement, by the way. I need you to know this. But they spent time with Jesus, being taught by Jesus, sitting with Jesus, and yet they still didn't truly see. They still didn't truly recognize. 
Because what was happening in front of them didn't line up with the ideas swirling around their head and what they thought God was supposed to do. And the only reason their thinking changes, the only reason their perspective changes, is because of the resurrection. It's the only reason we're here this morning as well. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, if there is no resurrection, then we're wasting our time and we're people without hope. And so without the resurrection, they wouldn't have seen it any different. They encounter on this road to Emmaus, this risen Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus yet when they first bump into him. But they eventually have this revelation. But as they travel along, this stranger, as they see him, helps them to think it through all differently. As the Bible tells us in Luke's gospel, the stranger turns around when he says this. We thought he was the Messiah. And he obviously wasn't. He didn't rescue us. He didn't rescue Israel. This stranger then says, well, don't you... Don't you understand? Don't you understand what you've read in the Scriptures? And, and Luke records, he records something that this stranger that we know is Jesus opens up the Old Testament from, from Moses right through the prophets and explains to them everything that God had intended and how it all came to pass in Jesus. I wish, when I read that passage in Luke, I wish if Luke had used a bit more ink and filled in that whole conversation, it would have been fantastic. But they change. Their thinking changes. I'm, I'm getting ahead, ahead of myself. We'll, we'll come back to that. But to be fair to the disciples and to the, and to the people of Israel and to the Jews, we have the same problem, don't we? We have the same problem with seeing God. Even Christians. I mean, come on. If God's going to sort out the world, If God's going to sort out the world, and let's think about the world today. If God's going to sort out the world, then some of us, even those of us who claim to know Jesus, well, we'd certainly have some suggestions lined up to God on a list somewhere about what God needs to do and how God needs to do it. Maybe if if we take today's political climate, for example, maybe we would be prone to suggest to God that he needs to decimate the Taliban. Just wipe them out. That would solve the problem, God. Or maybe if we're thinking about climate change, and what we'd suggest to God is, well, you need to come and you need to fix whatever's broken in the rhythms of creation. That's what you need to do, God. But if God came in the flesh today and taught what Jesus did and modeled a life like Jesus did and then was put to death through a shameful method of state execution and then rose from the grave, and then in doing so, if God declared that this was God's solution if this was God's rescue mission, from all of that, this is what I'm doing to save the world and to put it right, including all of that, we'd be all saying, mm, that's, that's, that's not what we're looking for, God. In fact, we wouldn't even say it. If that happened in our midst, it wouldn't even grab our attention because it's not what we're looking for. It's not what we're seeking God to do. See, depending on how you think about it, Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection is unexpected and it's surprising because it's not the solution to the problems as we see it. We wouldn't see it. We wouldn't report on it. In fact, it would not grab any headlines on our newspapers. We would never Google it if it happened here today because it's not what we are looking to happen. Unless, unless, that maybe the Taliban or climate change aren't the problem. Bear with me. What if they're not the problem, 
but are just symptoms of something else. Unless maybe in Jesus' day, Torah breaking wasn't really the problem, and Rome was not really the problem, or now were they really the enemy. But again, maybe there were symptoms of something else, maybe something under an influence of another enemy. And what if death and sin and Satan, what if they were the problem? The universal problem, everybody's problem, creation's problem. And what if defeating sin and Satan and death and breaking the hold and the influence upon humanity, what if that was the universal solution? You've gone quiet on me. See, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we looked at hungry and thirsty for justice, I mentioned how the Exodus story, the story of the Exodus that you can read in a book called Exodus, is so important to the people of Israel. And I mentioned briefly a couple of weeks ago that in Christ's life and death and his resurrection, God was performing a new Exodus. That God was breaking humanity out of its bondage to sin and death and Satan, just like he broke Israel out of Egypt. Are you with that? That God in Jesus is performing a prison break. Or as John sees it in that wonderful letter called Revelation, he has this vision of Christ, doesn't he? The risen Christ in Revelation 1 and verse 18. And Jesus, this living vision, says to him, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And look, and I like to picture in my eyes Jesus kind of taking them out and dangling them in front of him as he says this. But look, I hold the keys to death and Hades. Now why is Jesus holding the keys to death and Hades? Because he's overthrown them. And he's robbed the keys off them. And he's performed the greatest prison break in all of history. That's the solution. See, and it's actually this Exodus theme. If, if you want to get into Matthew's gospel, if you want to explore it, I, can I encourage you to read Matthew through the lens of the Exodus? It will help you. Because one of Matthew's great themes throughout his whole account is that he wants Israel to see that Jesus is the new Moses. The Moses. That he's the new liberator. He's the one who brings the new covenant. In fact, isn't it funny that it's the Sermon on the Mount? He's standing on a mountain giving a new law. It's part of Matthew's theme. A new covenant. It's part of Matthew's theme. Jesus' ministry in Matthew is just exodus on replay. That's what it is, Exodus and replay, that he came to liberate us, you, me, and Israel from the slavery to evil and to overcome the furrow of hell. That's what Jesus is doing. There's a new Passover in his death. And Jesus is victorious in this. Oh, I was expecting something a bit more Pentecostal as a response. If he's not victorious in that, then we have no right to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord because he's victorious in that. There's a Swedish, a Swedish Lutheran theologian going back uh, quite some time now, a guy called Gustav Aulian. Uh, you don't have to remember his name, but he put it this way. The work of Christ, the work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage. Sin and death and the devil. And the victory of Christ creates a new situation. A new kingdom, a new life, and it brings the rule, those powers, the rule to an end, and it sets men free from their dominion. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we preach. That's what we claim. But you can't see that 
You will not see that. You will not see God acting in that way unless there's something of a clear out, a purge of the other ideas that are floating around in our heads. See, and this is why Jesus says about in this beatitude, it's the pure of heart that will see God. He's not talking about perfect people because none of us are perfect. In the, in the Greek, and I'm sorry to throw a Greek word at you this early on a Sunday morning. In the Greek word, the word pure is the word kapharos. I've said that wrong. Kapharos. Sorry. Kapharos. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Kapharos. 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 It's where we get the name Kathleen, by the way. She's, not, she's gone out to kids' life, hasn't she? But that's where, she's there. She's right in front of me, Kathleen. It's where the name Kathleen comes from. Uh, but it's where we get the English word cathartic. Anyone heard that word cathartic? It's a strange word. Not many people use it these days. Now, I'm going to avoid the medical definition of cathartic, although it would. It would really provide a perfect example and a perfect analogy of what I'm saying this morning. Uh, but we've all had what people call as cathartic moments. We've just felt an emotional relief when we've got something off our chests, when we've unburdened ourselves, when we've gotten rid of something. You know that kind of sense of relief when you've put a big weight, whether it be emotional down, or, or you've got over something, it's been a hard time, and you've finally got through that hard time, and you've sat down, there's a sense of relief because what was once burdening you is suddenly gone. Cathartic. It means cleansed. It means purged. It means expelled. And when Jesus talks about the heart, we've got to remember that the ancient world referred to the heart in the same way we talk about our brains. That it was a scene as the seat of our thinking, our understanding, our, our thought patterns. And so when Jesus says pure of heart, he's talking about people with cleansed thinking. People who think clearly. People who see without other notions and other polluted theology floating around in their heads and their ideas. Are you with me? So to go back to the I spy analogy, these people will see that God is right there in Jesus among them. Nearby, they can touch him because other ideas aren't floating around in their brains, stopping them from seeing it. Are you with me? Or to put it into Jesus' context, these people will recognize what God is doing in Jesus because their brains are not swimming with toxic ideas of God's launching a military coup against Rome. You got it. So the pure of heart, the pure of heart are those who are willing to have their thinking about God turned upside down and inside out and expelled by the self-revelation of God in Jesus. We say that the pure of heart are those who are willing to have their thinking about God turned upside down, inside out, and expelled by the self-revelation of God in Jesus. Jesus uses other words than this as well. He says this term a few times. I'm not going to explore these too deeply this morning, but I'll put some ex- something extra in my notes for you later if you want to check him out online. But Jesus uses the word repent a few times, doesn't he? Repent. Repent. In the Greek, it's a word called metanoia, and it actually means change your mind. So Jesus is saying, repent. Change your mind, because the kingdom is here, and you can't see it, because you've got other ideas in your head. Or, to a very famous Pharisee called Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus turns around to them and says, Look, Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are... I expected more Pentecost. Thank you, Clive. 
You won't even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Without catharsis, without a change in our thinking, a change stimulated and born of God, then the reality is you will not be able to identify God's movements among us. Because you're looking everywhere else. And God has a little knack of turning up in ways we don't expect. But in ways that actually he needs to turn up. Because how we see the problems aren't the problems. They're just symptoms. It's just something bigger. And again, this is true for all of us. It doesn't matter who we are. We all have ideas of what God is like. Every single one of us. Even the atheists in the world, especially the atheists in the world, have ideas of what they think God is like. It's why they reject God. If God's like that, don't want anything to do with him. I've heard some atheists put it that way. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite atheists to read. Sounds funny as a pastor to say one of my favorite atheists to read. Uh, but he, he says he, he can't accept God because God is just such a mismatch of all these different ideas, so therefore I don't believe in God. Which I find funny. He has an idea of God that he rejects and he calls himself an atheist. I think that doesn't make sense. And so atheists have ideas of God. Religious people especially have ideas of God. Even before we became Christian, no matter what our walk of life is, we came into us with ideas of God, and the constant work of the Holy Spirit, and the constant work of the Scriptures, and the constant work of Christ in us is to get our ideas in the right place. It's why we meet every week. So maybe, maybe some of us saw God as some cosmic law enforcer, who just hands out rules and punishments, and it's just clear cut like that. Or maybe we've seen God as some genie-like character who makes our wishes and dreams come true with a wave of his divine hand. Or maybe we saw God as some divine vending machine. That if we put the right stuff in in the right way, then God, then God spits out the right things and the right blessings. Or maybe because of how it's been taught, we've come, or how we've, what we've experienced in church or through other religious people. Maybe we've just seen God as a tyrant or an oppressor, and certainly not as a savior. And maybe we've seen God as part of the problems that need fixing in the world and not actually the God who's the part and is the solution to the problems in the world. No matter what it is, no matter what it is, we all have these ideas, and the list could go on and on and on. And maybe, and we've got to be honest with this, maybe some of those ideas still impair our vision of God. So when we come to worship in the morning, they impair our view sometimes. When we come to pray, they impair our view. Or when we come to read the scriptures, they impair our view. Or maybe when we come to encounter other people, now we deal with other people, they impair our view. But the challenge of this beatitude, the challenge of Jesus' life, is have we heard what God has said about himself through God's self-revelation of himself through Jesus? It's there that we see God. And if we want to understand the scriptures, it's there that we understand the scriptures. If you want to realize the character of God, if you want to understand God's dealings and recognize his working with us and around us, then look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. But if we're saturated with other ideas of what God is like and of how God moves, then we'll be unaware of God moving among us. I mean, how many of us have left the church meeting and said, God didn't move this morning? 
it's not on my notes, this. I'm going totally off on a tangent. But how many of us have left the church meeting and said, God didn't move this morning? All because in our heads, we're thinking, if God moves, this happens, that happens, that happens. And we've been looking for A, B, C, all the way to Z, and God's over here doing something else, and we've not had our hearts open to God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. An earthquake happens, or a disease breaks out somewhere, and some idiot across the globe suddenly stands up and says, it's God. God's caused it. And I'm not going to apologize for my use of the word idiot. But someone gets up and they say that. It's God. God's caused the earthquake. God sent this disease. Then, then I think you need to look at Jesus Christ. Because God's the one who's come to repair creation in Christ and to heal the sick. A miracle breaks out in a meeting. A miracle, so-called. And someone is blessed, divinely blessed with golden teeth. You laugh. You laugh. And someone stands up and declares it as a miracle. It's a work of God then I think you need to look at Jesus Christ. Because as an example, when Jesus healed those who could not walk, he did not give them gold legs or a gold walking frame. Did he? Just point out the obvious. He gave them something far, far better, restored function to their natural legs. So why would Jesus hand out gold teeth when a natural tooth is the better thing? Someone stands up and they call us to hate somebody or some group or to see and to treat them as enemies that need to be attacked or treated like subhuman or sacking second-class people. And maybe they base that hate on, on, their, on their nationality or their ethnicity or their color or their background and they suddenly declare that this is God's will. Then we really need to look at Jesus who taught us to love our enemies and he invited us to be in the very next Beatitude invited us to be peacemakers because it's the peacemakers, Jesus said, who are the children of God. And he loved, Jesus, he loved and served all humanity. And the Jesus who gave his life for everybody. Even the worst of sinners, everybody. And he calls us, his disciples, to exhibit that same level of mercy and that same level of sympathy as Helen explored it last week. As we love Others, that the greatest sign of love is what? Laying your life down on behalf of others. Not taking lives, but giving your life. See, the examples could go on and on and on, but the point is Jesus is where we see God. And if we're getting confused, it's there that we go back to and we read everything else through Christ. But I wonder, I really do wonder, And this is true of me, not just you sitting and listening. It's true of me. How often do we base our ideas of God on our own thinking or our own prejudices or our own wants instead of looking at what Jesus, God has said about himself in Jesus Christ? Or as that famous proverb puts it, lean not on your own understanding, but trust the Lord. See, blessed, blessed are the pure of heart. Blessed are the cathartic. Blessed are the born again. Those who are willing to relinquish the ways of boxing God in because they will see what God has said and what God has done 
through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for your help. We, uh, we sang before, Lord God, that in all your ways you are faithful. And that in all our life you have been faithful. Uh, and Lord, it, maybe I'm just praying on behalf of myself, but I'll be honest, there's times when I look back at my life and I don't see that. And I don't see that because I have other ideas, other expectations, a, a checklist that I've kind of put out towards you, Lord God, saying do this, do that, and then do this, and then I'll be able to see you. And yet, Lord God, you, you've come to open our blind eyes and to open our calloused hearts and to purge our minds of, of polluted theology, Lord God. Lord God, we're, we're aware that the enemy, uh, Satan, has a wonderful tactic of lies, Lord God. Uh, we remember that scene in, in Genesis in the garden uh, where he whispers to Adam and Eve, and as a result of that, when you turn up for your evening stroll with them, something you did on, on a daily basis, they listened to the serpent and they hid. And that lie created a sense of distrust in them, Lord God. They perceived you differently. They had other ideas of what your intentions were about, Lord God. And they ran and they hid. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray you would open our blind eyes this morning. That you would speak through your Holy Spirit your life, and your truth. You've said that you had sent the Spirit, Lord God, to lead us into truth. And so, Holy Spirit, lead us into truth. We don't want to be deceived by the enemy any longer. We want to see you. Like John wrote about you, Lord God, that we have seen him. And we have seen him in all his glory. And he's the glory of the Father. And so, Lord, I pray you help us to open our minds, open our hearts, open our lives to you, Lord God. And to respond, birth something new in us, Lord God. We are born again, not just, not just in the sense of just a one-off thing, but Lord, keep birthing us again. Keep helping us, Holy Spirit. Uh, not, to, not to clutch hold of an idol, Lord God, but to cling hold of the living God, the real God. And that your life would blaze through us and purge all that would, that would try and pollute our vision of you. Uh, we ask it in your mighty name, your glorious name. Uh, your powerful name, the liberating, victorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.